Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. One afternoon in January 1665, Samuel Pepys visited his favourite bookshop and on impulse bought a volume that took his fancy. On his way home, he stopped off at the butcher for a hare's foot to treat his colic. The following day, he wrote in his diary, Before I went to bed... I sat up till two o'clock in my chamber reading Mr. Hook's Microscopial Observations, the most ingenious book that ever I read in my life. This work by Robert Hooke is commonly known as the Micrographia. It's the earliest book in English containing detailed observations and drawings made, making use a new and revolutionary use of scientific instruments, of the scientific instrument, the microscope. Invented around the turn of the 17th century, the microscope has transformed our understanding of the natural world, making it possible to examine objects far too small to be seen by the naked eye. In the last hundred years, the development of the electron microscope and other discoveries have made it possible to see structures as small as a single atom. With me to discuss the history and application of the microscope are Jim Bennett, visiting keeper at the Science Museum in London, Sir Colin Humphreys, Professor of Materials Science and Director of Research at the University of Cambridge, and Michelle Peckham, Professor of Cell Biology at the University of Leeds. Jim Bennett, various names have been suggested as the inventor of the microscope. Uh, can you give us some examples of the early essays in this? We have to go back to Middleburg in the Netherlands at the beginning of the 17th century. So the story is rather like the originating story of the telescope. Very similar, because the same names are involved. Spectacle makers in Middleburg, like Hans Lippershey, who's a, a working op, a, opt, optician. Uh, Zacharias uh, Janssen, also involved, a claimant for the early telescope. It's less of a competition, the, the microscope. People are less fired up about who, who, who did this first. There aren't any patent applications and so on. But the story is very similar, and, and the names are all quite easily recognisable. Galileo, for instance, is an, is an early player in, in the microscope as well as the telescope. You can use a Galilean telescope as a low-powered microscope in a, in a particular configuration. Kepler, again, comes into the story because it's Kepler who... Makes the first uh, gives the first theoretical account of the way um, microscopes might work and the kind of configurations and lenses that you would use. So there are a lot of people at, uh, uh, interested in this in the early days. Uh, we know of uh, a compound microscope in England in 1619, uh, owned by a Dutchman uh, engineer called Cornelius Drebbel, and it's England, the Netherlands, and Italy, as with the telescope. Uh, that they're making the play for the development of the microscope in the uh, in the 17th century. So it's a it's a it's a a, a, a story that's very familiar to, to to us in a way, and yet less less fired because with the telescope. People are interested in the, the heavens, cosmology, and so on. Galileo's making a, a big thing of what it all means. People are less anxious about being interested in the very small. But it gets going, one of the people who really gets it going is, again, it's a, a Dutchman, uh, Van Leeuwenhoek. Can you tell us what he did that was very important? Yes, it's, in, it's odd to begin with Leeuwenhoek in a way because he's so unusual. I mean, he's outside the standard practice. By the time Leeuwenhoek's involved in the late 17th century, there are a lot of commercial makers. There, there are quite a number of microscopists doing interesting things and doing things with with compound microscopes, I say microscopes with more than one lens, with two or perhaps three lenses. Leeuwenhoek is in Delft. He's uh, only speaking Dutch, he says. He doesn't have any other, other languages. He's working very much on his own. He's a, he's a, a cloth merchant. 
He's using a simple microscope, that's to say one with a single So it's almost a hobby? Um, It begins as a hobby, Mm. but it takes over his life, and he becomes very famous as a microscopist. But what's curious about uh, Leeuwenhoek is his microscopes are so unusual. He's making them himself. He's making tiny little spherical lenses himself, very short focal length lenses. They have to be used in a very particular way. You hold them right up to your eye because the, the focal length is so short. And he sees the most extraordinary things, things uh, little animals, as he calls them everywhere, protozoa, uh, spermatozoa, and so on. These, the, the world at the micro level seems to be teeming with life in a way that no one could have imagined. So he becomes very famous for these spectacular results which are extraordinarily impressive, but can you really believe them? It's a really very unusual phenomenon that, uh, that, that is, is the, uh, the practice of Anthony van Leeuwenhoek. He's extraordinarily industrious. He 20, 250 optical microscopes he, he built. He created more than 400 lenses himself, including three in gold. And he didn't publish a book, but he wrote letters to the Royal Society's new publication and thereby became uh, known, famous and copied throughout Europe. Yes, again, it's this uh, Dutch-English uh, access, uh, 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 access. And, and yes, the, the, the uh, Philosophical Transactions, the new journal of the Royal Society, needs content, and he's providing it. Colin Humphreys, uh, almost at the same time, the English uh, scientist Robert Hooke was working with early microscopes, and I mentioned the book Micrographia in my introduction. Can you tell us a bit more about how, what he did and how he did it? Right, so Robert Hooke is sometimes called the English father of microscopy in the same way as Loon Hooke's the father of microscopy. And I think he was a genius. And this was, micrography we've mentioned, was the first major book the Royal Society published. It was the first scientific bestseller. So the first edition sold out in a few days. And I think he was probably the first popularizer of science. So his book showed what you could do with an optical microscope. It showed these wonderful images. They were engraved in the book, images of insects, of flies. He had folding out plates in this book. You can fold them out four times, get these huge magnified images of flies. And people wanted optical microscopes. It popularised optical microscopes. And um, I've brought along a picture which I think is, to me, the most significant picture. <laughs> just what we need. I know. Just, I know. <laughs> well, hold it very close to the microphone and we might have a chance. You'll see, yes. <laughs> and uh, this, is, this is a picture which shows little crystals. And uh, when you put little crystals, almost anything under the microscope, they don't look like spheres or blobs. They're usually geometrical shapes. So they're cubes or pyramids or rhombohedral or something. And so this is a picture of these little, microsco- of, of these little crystals. And what's amazing is, in this page from Micrographia, he's drawn underneath them these crystals, and then he's put inside each drawing little spheres, and he's shown how the shapes of these crystals, they might be cubes or pyramids, can be made up from these little spheres. And these little spheres are almost certainly atoms. I think that's what he's believing. And so it's not generally realised. I think Robert Hooke was the first person to actually say materials are composed of atoms. And he doesn't say it. It's just there in his drawings. And I think that's remarkable. And he's not known for this. So, you know, I think he's just a great scientist. It's an extraordinary fertile time, that Royal Society, wasn't it? We still can't really credit it that in such a short time so many great men, I'm afraid they all were men, produced so much that defined at the modern scientific age. That's right. I mean, his misfortune, in a sense, is that he was born at the same time as Isaac Newton, and Isaac Newton sort of outshone him, and so everyone knows about Newton and people don't know about Hooke, but they were both just scientific geniuses. Can you tell us about his microscope uh, compared with Leeuwenhoek's microscope, the actual object itself? Was it different? 
I think it was very similar. I mean, Lauren Hope made his own lenses, and he was a genius at that, uh, but I think they're just very similar microscopes. And uh, just uh, one very fascinating point, Robert Hooke coined the word cell. So when he saw blood cells or other sorts of cells, he called them cells. And the reason he did, he could see in his microscope that these were surrounded by membranes, and they looked like walls in the microscope. And he was such a lateral thinker, he thought... This reminds me of a monk cell. You know, a monk lives in a little room. It's called a cell because it's got walls around it. And so he took this word cell from the monk cells and he coined the phrase cell for biology. And, of course, we, we talk about biological cells all the time we today. We have a professor of cell biology at the table at the moment. Uh, right. From the, from the 18th century, sci- the scientists, persons like you, began to notice flaws in microscopes, uh, in particular with their lenses. What was the problem? What was the main problem? The main problem was what was called aberration. So the lenses were not perfect. And this goes back a long time. I mean, I've got another picture here I won't show, but it's, uh, it's in the British Museum. I'll show it. We'll love to see <laughs> okay. it. OK, it's here. It's here. So, so uh, this is uh, in the British Museum. And this is called the Nimrod lens. Nimrod lens. I'm holding it up. You're Nimrod right. lens. And this is 750 BC, right? 750 BC in Assyria, now modern Iraq. And this was a lens, and it magnified about three times. And not better than three times because of the aberrations, also used as a burning glass to form fire. And I think why the developed nations, the early civilizations, came from sunny countries was because you could use lenses to make fire. You could then smelt bronze and uh, uh, you know, brass and iron. And so the, the Bronze Age and the uh, Iron Age developed in these sunny countries because we had lenses. They could make fire. In England, we're still rubbing sticks together to make fire. You know, very difficult. And so, and so they had these lenses can make fire. And so that's why I think early civilizations were in sunny countries. And um, so what Leonhood did was to polish these and polish these and make them much better. But we've moved on from Leonhood, I'm afraid. Yes. They began to discover that the light micro- microscopes dependent on light had yes. limitations. Now, yes. can you tell us, quite soon, can you tell us what the major limitation was? The major limitations were the lenses, you can polish spherical lenses, they don't focus a point in the object to a point in the image. They form a blurred image, and that's called an aberration. And the second problem is if, if you use white light then although they can focus the individual colours to a point, when you have white light, they focus the different colours to different planes in the image. You get a blurred image, and if you look at an image with white light, you get coloured fringes around it, and these are called aberrations, and these limited the performance. Because of the difference of the wavelengths, because which is the difference of the wavelengths, in that one. that's right. Yes, then, yes. yes. Um, yeah. And we can correct those yeah, now. But then they couldn't, and this would seem to be a limitation. They couldn't correct them then, but then they could form other lenses. So if you have a convex lens, you can make a concave lens, that, that corrects them. And that was done at a fairly early stage. With electron microscopes, we'll get to later, the correction wasn't done until 1997, right? Very recent corrections. There's another more fundamental limitation which you can't correct, and that's due to the wavelength of light itself. And... Uh, Perhaps, uh, well, I'm going to Michel now. Uh, at the end of the 18th century, it, uh, <coughs> it microscopes very much like the microscopes we see today. Will you, talk to, will you just talk us through the instrument that had arrived by the end of the 18th century, about 120, 130 years after, uh, after the two prime inventors? Well, I, I suppose what you could say, it is very much like... Actually, as a child, I had a microscope. It was probably not dissimilar because I was a bit of a sad person and I wanted to have a microscope for my birthday instead of a doll. But there you Why go. is that sad? It sounds bad. <laughs> <laughs> I had a microscope. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, 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 I too was fascinated at looking at things and I think the, the sort of microscope I had was probably then was not just very dissimilar. So it had a stage that I could put whatever it is I wanted to look at on the stage. 
it had a little mirror underneath and I could shine some light on the mirror so I could illuminate my specimen. Um, then it's got a tube and at one end of the tube is the objective lens and you and the other end is the eyepiece and you look down the eyepiece and <clears throat> both the objective lens and the eyepiece magnify the specimen. So I don't know what I would have had on that microscope, probably nothing more than about 100 times, I would have thought. If but that. at the end of the 18th century, was it much more developed than that? Or did you get as a present when you were a child the state-of-the-art microscope at the end of the 18th oh, century? Oh, no, no, no. I, what I got was probably... So what was going on at the end of the 18th How did it develop? Well, I, I, it's, it's not... Uh, so that, that, that sort of basic compound microscope that uh, Jim was talking about earlier, that's pretty much what you would have had. What, what you get today is probably not too too dissimilar in, in, the, in the basic components are very similar it's just a much more chunky microscope instead of a single eyepiece you'd have two eyepieces so you can have binoculars and stereo vision you've got a few more perhaps a few more internal lenses that you, you never even really know about as a cell biologist I have to say but which will correct for these various aberrations that we're talking about like the the color the, the problem with the colors which we call chromatic aberration and so on well, can we come to um, the, the German physicist um, called Ernst Abbe worked out um, that the in the 1870s that the conventional microscope, such as the one you got, could yes. only be improved up to a point. Now, why, what was that point? Well, it, it's what was alluded to earlier, really. <clears throat> so the main problem is that when light goes through a specimen, when you're looking through a specimen, the light goes through the specimen um, and it gets diffracted, so it get, which basically means the light bends about. And it forms this fuzzy. So, if a night you've got a nice little because light is hitting it at different speeds. Yeah. Well, yes. well, it's a bit more complicated than that. So you've got. Good. A Can you make it complicated? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what, you're, what you've got, if you think about a normal bright field microscope, you've got white light that's you're illuminating your specimen with, which has got multiple colours in. But you've got lots in the object that you're looking at. You've got lots of very small points, if you like, that you're trying to image. So inside a cell, you might be looking at organelles. You might be trying to look at some detail. And what happens is when the light interacts with those objects, it diffracts, it bends around them, and it um, will travel at different speeds through the cell as well. So you get this interference effect as light that goes through the cell and light that doesn't go through the cell, the waves will interfere. And by the time you actually form the image, um, you get this blurry spot. So instead of the bright, really discrete spot that you might be trying to image, you get a blurry spot. And that's just simply a property of physics. And this is what Abbe worked out. It basically means that if you've got two little spots in the cell that are very close together, you can't tell how close they are. Well, sorry, if they're, if they're closer than a certain distance, which is roughly about half the wavelength of light, you can't actually distinguish them as two separate spots. You can only see them as one spot, and that's because of this blurring effect. So it's a, so it's a property of, of the light and the wavelength of light. You're limited by the wavelength of light in terms of what you can resolve, and this is something called the diffraction limit. So it just it's about how much detail you can see in a specimen. So we just, they discovered the diffraction limit in 1870. They yes. must then set about trying to do something about it. How much did they manage to do about it, and how well, soon? Well, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing you can do about it. It's it's a, a property of of light and how it interferes with your specimen. And um, there is the only thing what you can do is you can make your lenses a little bit better. So there's something called a numerical aperture for a lens. And if you have a bigger numerical aperture, you can collect more light. And if you can collect more light, you can get more detail. But that's about it. So because there's a limit to how big you can make that numerical aperture. So 
you, you're limited by the light itself, the wavelength of the light, and the numerical aperture of your lens, which is depends. That's that gives you a cone of light that images on your specimen, and those two things together. But you still see quite a lot. In fact, a very great deal. You can we'll come still back see to quite Jim a lot. Bennett because biologists at the end of the night century, I'm told, found a way of making small objects much easier to see uh, under the microscope because of. Is that because of staining? Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, it's, it does happen. I mean, Leeuwenhoek did a bit of staining, so th- this has quite a long Can you tell us what history. staining is? Well, oh, I see. Yes. yes. It's, well, it's 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 adding a, a dye of some sort to the specimen because if you look, if you use light passing through a specimen, it 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 doesn't have much differentiation in the in the in the in the, in the visible change that, that that happens to the light. So you don't see the structure. It's 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 largely, I say, transparent and and undifferentiated. <coughs> so you you the idea is to add a a, a stain. A, a, a chemical of some sort, which which reacts differentially with the, with the structure that's there and and makes it visible. So you can see these differences that are invisible otherwise. But that that's is this addressing the the problem that Michelle was talking about? Not really. It's a way of uh, it, it. It doesn't get around the, the the diffraction limit in any way. It just makes the um the it, it brings out the the it's 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 rather as though you have a uh, you're painting by numbers, let's say, and you and and you have your your, your basic outline, and then you add lots of color and you. Differentiate all those different bits by by color, and and but that that is happening through the 18th century, sometimes accidentally because they're doing other things. They're injecting. There's a lot of preparation involved in these specimens, and they're they're injecting fluids into it, which which stain it almost by accident. And in the 19th century, when you have a lot of synthetic dyes, there's a lot of possibilities for adding stains deliberately, and it and becomes a whole industry. You? What does this give you that you didn't have before? It gives you it it it, it makes the the uh, the structure visible in the specimen, so that then at least the possibility of seeing it. So it's got nothing much to do with the optical apparatus that we've been talking about. It's, it's rendering the, the, uh, the structure which is in the specimen uh, uh, visible by, by, by d- differential colour. And, and there, are, there, are whole, there are whole industries who pr- will prepare the slides for you by the late 19th century. Colin Humphreys, um, so we're still on the limitations of the light mi- uh, microscope, but in 1897, J.J. Thompson at Cambridge discovered the electron, mm. and uh, surprisingly, by these laws of unexpected consequences that always turn up in science, uh, f- uh, not very much later, it, it, was, uh, it was entering into this field with a, um, an, a scientist called Ernst Rusko invented the, what became as known as the electron microscope. Now, can you tell us about the electron microscope and what... Just tell us about it, first of all. Okay, so this was a remarkable series of scientific discoveries that led to electron microscopes. As you say, J.J. Thompson discovered the electron in 1897 in Cambridge. First fundamental particle discovered, you know, neutrons and protons afterwards. Um, and then about 20 years later, maybe in 1924, a French scientist, Louis de Broglie, he showed, well, he theorised every moving particle has a wavelength associated with it. That was 1924. People thought he was mad, most people thought, this is absolutely crazy. How can a particle be a wave? And uh, some scientists, though, they said, let's do an experiment. So one year later, in 1925, uh, in England, uh, Thompson and Reed, in America, Gerberson and Germa, they looked at, uh, one looked at gold, one looked at nickel, they bombarded it with electrons, and they found a diffraction pattern. They found that these solids diffracted electrons, they bent electrons, as, as, uh, as Michelle has said, and this shows that the electrons were a wave. And then people, there was a, a joke at the time, he said, ah, electrons are waves on Monday, Wednesday and Friday. <laughs> They're particles on Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday, 
and on the Sabbath they rest. So <laughs> that was a nice joke. And, uh, and so electrons then were known to be waves in 1925. And the question was, could you do anything about this? And a German called Bush found that you could focus electrons because you can't lose glass lenses to focus them as with light and magnetic fields so he constructed a magnet with a hole in the center a bit like a polo mint you pass an electron beam through this magnet it focuses the electrons and then rusker said okay we can put two electron lenses together to get an electron microscope in 1933 he built the first electron microscope with a resolution better than an optical microscope so where'd you get your electrons from to start with, they got them from what were called discharge tubes. They were called cathode discharge tubes. So you ionised a gas, and you had gas ions in the tube and electrons in the tube, and then you had an anode and a cathode, and the cathode accelerated these, or the anode accelerated these electrons towards it, had a hole in the centre, and you've got a beam of electrons coming out. Can you take us on from that, Michelle Peckham? Well, um, how would you like me to take you on? Well, you as far to... as you can go, really. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, um, well, Colin set it up. If you just <laughs> run with it, really. okay, all right. Uh, well, I mean, so as a cell biologist, we we use light and electron microscopes, and of course, the beauty about electron microscopes is electrons have a much shorter wavelength. So, what that immediately means, because we know that wavelength limits your resolution. So, if you've got a shorter wavelength, wavelength and the resolution, so that's how close two things can get together. If, if the wavelength is shorter, you can see things that are closer together, so you get a better resolution. So you get, well, actually, we used to have arguments about this at the dinner table about just how much you could see with a microscope, because my sons would come to me and say, you can see um, atoms with an electron microscope. And I believe that actually is true now. <laughs> mm-hmm. But the sort of microscope that we use um, routinely... Yeah, but we're still trying to stay in the 20s twi- th- th- and yes. 30s. This seemed to be a big advance, Well, it, it? it was. And I can give you a very nice example, actually, from Leeds, where... Um, a mi- so if you want to look inside a cell, it's you can see a certain amount of detail with a light microscope. But if you get to the electron microscope, you can see much more detail. So if we talk about something like a sperm, which has a nice flagellum, we want to see what's inside that flagellum. It's very narrow. You, you can't really see much inside that with a normal microscope, a light microscope. Put it in the EM, you can start to see this very beautiful crystalline arrangement of microtubules inside, which, which are these protein filaments, so little um, cores of, of tubulin. So that's that's why they call them microtubules. And that was discovered by Irene Manton, who was a scientist at Leeds. She was the first woman professor at Leeds, in fact. So she used the electron microscope. She was one of the first people to actually look at... You have to cut thin sections, you have to look in thin sections, but she was able to show this very fine ultrastructure of flagella for the first time. So that's what you can do in the electron microscope, but you can't do the light microscope. So for a time, uh, Jamad, these two were running together. The electron had come yeah. in, seeming to be sweep everything away. This was the uh, the new thing. Uh, light was... The microscopes were going to light were old-fashioned passe and didn't do as much as this did. What were the advantages and disadvantages? But soon sort of slowed down, they began to weigh up the advantages and disadvantages. Yes. Can you briefly tell us the well, advantages and disadvantages of each of those? Yes, I, as an historian, I'd want to make a bit more continuity than we've seen so far. I mean, at the, at the moment it, we, the, the, the electrons suddenly appear. Um, in, in order to improve the resolution, sort of problems we've been talking about, you use shorter wavelengths. So microscopists start using 
bluer light, and then they start using ultraviolet light, and then they, they, they start illuminating with, with uh, electro- illuminating after a fashion with electrons which ha- with a wavelength associated with electrons is even shorter. So there is a continuity here. It isn't quite so so abrupt, and that continuity is is seen in in the practice. You were saying, Michelle, that you use both light and and electron microscopes. Advantages and disadvantages. Well, the obvious advantage we've heard about. Uh, for the electron microscope, the resolution is so much, you know, enormously greater. The magnification possibilities are much greater. It's it's a bit uh, hard to talk about disadvantages, except of course it's all very expensive, and um, the uh, and there's a lot of skills involved, uh, a lot of investment involved. The preparation of the specimens is very difficult. Have to go in a vacuum and so on, and 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 how well they'll stand up to that is mm-hmm. is an issue. So there's there's a whole uh, area of expertise that that, that uh, accrues to electron microscopy, uh, which which is a, a possible uh, disadvantage. One other thing I'd like why, to say... Why is, it so why is it so expensive, the electron microscope? Well, because a lot you of equipment involved. You said, of course, involved. but most of us don't uh, know why, A lot of equipment involved, and, and you have special rooms and so on. And when you light, light microscopes are developing as well and becoming expensive. There's just yeah. one thing I would like to say in relation to what you, your son was asking about the uh, can we see atoms. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot big distance now. I don't know if you'd call this a disadvantage between the... the, the, the the, the, the natural uh, process of seeing and, and, and the manipulation of this experience so that we think of it as seeing. And I don't know if you think of that as a... There's a you have to tell a very long story now to, to uh, the interested public and maybe to as well to yourselves, which is a, a theoretical story we, we, to, to bring you back into thinking about this as a, as, as a visual experience and need to recreate the, uh, the, the, the image out of uh, the, the, the electron uh, outcome of, of the bombardment. And is that a disadvantage because we are so far away and uh, in, in, in conceptual terms from, from, from where we began this story, that's to say looking more closely. Do you want to take that up? Or do you want yes, to... let me touch on that. So, so, so I, think, um, I think you're true. What you say is correct in, in that until very recently uh, you needed really quite good theory to interpret electron microscope images. I think now with the very latest electron microscopes atoms look like atoms. Okay. So you can actually see atoms and you think they do look like okay. atoms. And so it's very visual representation now. Can I say with you, Colin, uh, the, uh, the electron microscope and made a significant discovery about metals, uh, which was very important in in the sense of knowledge for knowledge's sake, but also extremely important when it was applied uh, commercially. Right. Can you tell us about that? I'm talking about dislocation. Yes. Yeah, so t- all right, let me talk about dislocation. C- can we do an experiment here? It's a quick experiment. Have we got time? Well, we're... Yeah, OK. <laughs> it's very quick. It's is very quick. It, is so it to do with dislocation? It, it is to do with dis- it's well, fundamental right, dislocation. Right? You so picked wh- up something that looks like a flute now, it, It's Colin. a copper rod. It's a rod of copper, right? right? OK. And, and it's, a, it's about, I don't know, a centimetre thick almost. And um, a, a puzzle that people had right, right back to the night was, why is metal so weak? Because you can calculate how strong metal should be. And this is a circus trick. So if I pass this to Michelle. Right. We'd like to bend that, Michelle. This may not work. I'm so not Michelle's Yuri got this copper. <laughs> oh, it is. Oh, yes, yeah, because copper's it's quite soft. So it's it? quite soft. Yeah. So you bend it. Bend it. Can you bend it more? Whoa. Right, okay. So Michelle, <laughs> is, Michelle is bending the copper tube. Right. Uh, it's, yeah. it's now a rather nice and, and, now, and of course, it's getting harder and harder and now, the more I bend and it. And now Michelle can pass it to Jim, yes. who's got rippling muscles, yes. <laughs> to bend it back again. Back again. 
You didn't think you were going to in for this, did you? It's incredibly hard. Now, this was a circus trip because there was this strong in the circus who bends something like this, and then you say, I'll give someone £10 if they can bend it back, and they couldn't, you know. And what happens is, this has got, to start with, this has got a low density what are called dislocation. So, metals are just a regular array of atoms, but sometimes things go wrong, they're imperfections or dislocations, and that's why metals are much weaker than they should be. So, what happened? So what happened here is when, when you bent it, you were creating lots of dislocations. They tangled up. And so when you try to bend it back again, then, you know, all tangled up. But the strength of the materials is due to dislocations. And in- How did the electron microscope deal with this? Uh, right, exactly. That's so, the question. So, so the question is, now, that's your question. So I'll get to your question. Good right. idea. Right. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so so in, in 1950, in 1950s, Peter Hirsch, a visionary scientist at Cambridge, he said... Let's have a, he had a new research student called Mike Whelan, and he set him this problem. He said, can you image dislocations in the electron microscope? Okay. And, and, uh, and they'd been proposed theoretically in 1930, and a lot of people didn't believe in them. And so Mike Whelan had the problem of making very thin foils, and so he, he, he went to a gold beater, where it existed in England, beaten gold, beaten gold foils, and he, he got beaten gold foils very narrow, very, very thin, and then he, he constructed his own equipment to make holes in these. He looked around the edge of the holes, put them in the microscope, and he saw dislocations there. And which when, were? Which looked, what are dislocations? Di- dislocations are a missing half-plane. If you think of a crystal as being a periodic array of atoms, and you can think of these atoms lying on planes in the crystal, a dislocation is a missing half-plane of atoms. And this and, makes it weaker than it should and be? And this it makes it much weaker than it should Why? be. Because if you think of trying to slide... Uh, a rug a, a, a rug over a floor, for example, a heavy rug, over, and you pull the rug at one end, it's quite hard to get it across. If you want to move it more easily, you form a little ruck at one, one end of the rug, and you move that ruck along, and then you move the rug along into a rum ruck. And that's what happens with dislocations. So a dislocation is a missing half plane. It's like a ruck in a crystal, and when you try and deform it, it can move easily. And what consequences did this have? And this means that metals are much weaker than they should be, and we understand now why they're much weaker. And if you want to make them stronger, you put lots of dislocations in which tangle up in, inside the crystal. And so this is so the strength of materials was explained by, by the electron microscope. This is a fundamental breakthrough. Excellent. Michelle Peckham, in the 1950s we have a light microscope, as it were. It doesn't make a comeback. It's never been out. It, it's developed into something called phase contrast microscope. What does that do and why is that a development? OK, so, well, phase contrast was invented by Zernica in about the 1930s, something like that. Um, and the problem is that when you illuminate a... Your, if you're trying to look at a cell down a microscope, it's actually not got very much contrast in it because it's mostly water with a few proteins in it, and that doesn't give you a lot of contrast, hence the dyes and so on that we've talked about before. So if you really want to see some detail, there's a little trick you can do because, as I've said before, the light that goes through the cell travels slightly slower than the light that doesn't go through the cell, and they interfere when they come out the other side and rejoin, as it were. So if you can somehow accentuate that difference and increase the delay between the light that goes through the cell and the light that doesn't go through the cell, you can get more interference between those two different paths of light. So that, that means you get more interference. So you have to think about waves on a pond making little ripples if you've got two waves in a pond that meet each other and the ripples can actually, where they're in phase, you get bigger ripples and where they're out of phase, you get smaller ripples. So you you accentuate the difference 
um, between the two different wavelengths when they're out of phase. And what that does in the microscope is it gives you better contrast. So now you you can see much more detail because without using stains, you can see detail. And that means that you can look at live cells because live cells, you can see them with bright field, but there's not very much contrast. But if you put some contrast in with this phase contrast, then you can look at live cells. So somebody called Abercrombie, for example, made very good use of that. This is in the old days where you didn't have fancy cameras or anything like that. So you had a film camera and he set that up on his microscope and he was imaging the cells as they're moving about. And he discovered this very important thing called contact inhibition. So if two cells meet each other, they're ruffling away, they meet each other, the ruffles stop and then the cells move away again. If two cancer cells meet each other, they don't care. One will climb over the other and they just really don't have that contact inhibition. So he made this very important discovery about how cells interact with each other and how that's affected in cancer cells by that ability of using phase contrast to be able to see cells in more detail and see the outlines of cells and so on. Jim Barrett, is this, as the light microscope, the microscope works through light, is, <coughs> which one, is this a sort of a beginning of more developments that have happened in the last 50 years, 50, 60 years? I guess so. Um, it certainly sounds like it to me. It isn't something I know much about the last 50 years, but uh, but but certainly it's when I... Yes, the, the, certainly this phase contrast business and confocal... Uh, yep. uh, techniques as well. I know a little bit about, and that's a, again a, a, a technique of the last, uh, well, yes, certainly the last few decades. Sort of took off in the eighties. Yeah. Mm. So, so, so yes. The, 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 it's interesting. The light microscope has has far from disappeared from mm-hmm. from the from the repertoire of, uh, of of equipment in the way one might have expected. Can I go back to our magician from Cambridge on the left, Colin <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> Humphreys? Yes. Um, the first electron microscopes manufactured were all of one type. They were called transmission electron microscopes. And then a different model was developed. Can you tell us what it was and what it can do? Yes, so this different microscope was developed in Cambridge. So UK had a lot of influence here. This was called a scanning electron microscope. It was developed in the engineering laboratory in Cambridge by Charles Oatley. Um, and for some materials, you really want to look at surfaces. So, for example, if you want to look at Velcro, you know, what's, how does Velcro work? You want to look at the surface of Velcro, see these little hooks in, in the Velcro. Or if you want to look at an optical disc, which is a bit like an old-fashioned 78, you know, gramophone record, how, uh, but, but uh, an optical disc which has lots of grooves in it. Um, how does an optical disc... So you want to look at the surface. And what Charles Oatley did, he, he focused a beam of electrons onto the surface of the material, and then he scanned it across the surface... And he detected the electrons back scattered from the surface and displayed those on a screen. It's a bit like a television screen is made up of an electron beam scanning across a television screen, giving uh, different intensity and different colours. And so this is what a scanning electron microscope does. It enables you to have a magnified image of the surface. When they were first made, they were made by Cambridge Scientific Instruments. They thought they'd sell six instruments, thousands of reuse, particularly in industry, also universities. It's like an optical microscope. It gives you bigger magnification, look at surfaces, incredibly useful instrument. Well, another breakthrough in the 1950s, Michelle Peckham, was uh, the development of a new technique known as Immunoflorence. Immunofluorescence. Immunofluorescence. I beg Florence's pardon. Immunofluorescence. Yeah, so immunofluorescence is interesting because actually fluorescent dyes have been around for quite a long time. Um, But really the big breakthrough, I guess, was actually developing antibodies because now what you can do is 
so when you look at a cell, you can just see everything. And if you want to look at some particular protein, something really specific that you're interested in, you've got to be able to label that specifically. And that's, of course, where antibodies came in. So you can stick your antibody onto your protein of interest and then find out where it is in the cell by attaching a fluorescent dye. So that sort of brought a new type of microscopy called epifluorescence microscopy, where you shine fluorescent light onto your specimen and you collect the fluorescent light back. All fluorescent materials, you excite them at a shorter wavelength and they emit at a longer wavelength. And this takes you towards what? What is better about it? What well, does it give you that you didn't have before? Well, it's revolutionary because now that you... So, for example, I was talking about the microtubules earlier. If you want to know how those microtubules are organised inside a cell, you could only really perhaps use the EM to do that. And the problem with the EM... What we haven't mentioned is that you can't look at live cells in the EM at all because it's all under vacuum and cells just die and you have to fix the cells and so on. But you can um, look at cells, you can actually look at mass and substructure in cells simply by staining up the only bits that you want to look at. And as long as that's within the resolution, you can look at things like microtubules so you can see how they're organised in a cell without having to go to electron microscope. So the other advantage is you don't have to do any sectioning because you need very thin specimens for your EM. So you can look at the whole cell, you can look at the organisation of all the microtubules, and actually it's rather beautiful, I have to say, particularly in dividing cells in my favourite. <laughs> <laughs> Jim, can I come to Jim now? Um, it seemed for a while that the electron microscope was going to simply replace the, uh, completely replace the old-fashioned light microscope, but that didn't happen. Can you tell us what the state of play between the two is now? Well, as I understand it, um, there are horses for courses. I mean, there are some things that electron microscopes can do and, and light microscopes can't. And, and for, after all, for, for a lot of everyday work, the light microscope is the, is the everyday tool. And that's, that's always been, or that hasn't always been the case. That's been the case from the late 19th century. And, and we, we're talking here about the cutting edge of uh, uh, university research and so on. But there are, there are labs across the world in, in hospitals and so on and, and filled with... with, uh, with High-powered, it's true, but but light microscopes that are working, not in 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 theory, not dissimilarly from from those of the middle of the nineteenth century. And so they, these microscopes have been developed, the lenses have been developed, uh, and the techniques of reading from them have been developed also. Well, it's interesting. I mean, and if, if you think about the 19th century, for example, I mean, I'm a historian, so I'll I'll always think of, think of parallels in the past. Um, the light microscope was being developed in an exaggerated way by the um, by the fellows of the Royal Microscopical Society. They were wealthy amateurs who were who were pushing the light microscope as far as they could, and they were more interested in microscopes than in the science that, that the microscope might reveal. Yes. So so they so they, they they developed microscopes that really weren't much use for the everyday working scientist. So that balance between the the, the cutting edge of research and the everyday needs of of, of professionals has has often created a kind of tension in in where you put your scientific resource and that was very exaggerated in the 19th century as i understand it we've got that more into balance now but maybe the scientists can tell me whether that tension still exists well, it was taught to physicists, physicists well, quite, there, I think. for example yes <laughs> yeah. colin, <coughs> colin humphreys can you give us you gave us a, a little indication before can you give us some idea of the way in which the electron microscope has driven 
technological research and development. Well, yes, so, so life today as we know it just wouldn't be possible without the discoveries in, with the electron microscope. For example, silicon chips, which get smaller and smaller and smaller. Uh, to start with, you could see the uh, size of the circuits in an optical microscope, and they got smaller and smaller. The electron microscope is essential to see what you've done with the silicon chip. So to design silicon chips, so all our computers composed of silicon chips, impossible without the electron microscope, that development. Our mobile phones full of silicon chips, kind of arsenide chips, impossible without the electron microscope. Um, even Rolls-Royce jet engines are now the particles in these turbine blades, you know. So modern life depends on the discoveries from the electron microscope. So it's it's just amazing. Remarkable. One of the most amazing things about science is <laughs> Thompson in Cambridge discovers, as it were, and, and names and works out the electron. And it, a, few, a, a chap getting on with being a Cambridge don and being, on, being a thinker, pure researcher, and not much later it's running the world. It is remarkable, yes. The, these developments, which people think may have no consequences. It's like Faraday said, electricity will never be used, and, uh, uh, and you know, we use it everywhere. Yes. yes. Um, electrons, although they are, ele the electron microscope has great, there are great difficulties with it, apart from the expense, aren't there? Uh, yes, I mean, they are much more complicated to operate, and you do have to take a lot of care with how you prepare your specimens for the microscopes and so on. But, I mean, you can you can do a lot of that. I mean, I think they've revolutionized biology as well, simply because of what you can see, but also for actually looking at molecules, proteins, and so on. You can get some very high-resolution structures of things by using the... Um, so, you know, you can do it, it's just a lot more work. Well, while we've got you here, um, we, <laughs> we talked about the diffraction limit earlier. Uh, we sought to limit the improvement of light manuscripts, but scientists seem to have found a way of breaking through that limit. Yeah, so, so I think it's been the last five to ten years of light microscopy have been having a bit of a revolution. So I think we all got very frustrated with the light microscope. So the first thing that came along was GFP, and that means you can tag your proteins with this green fluorescent protein. And that was what the Nobel Prize was awarded for a few years ago. What that has been developed in and what people realise is that if you've got a fluorescent object in the cell, which you can't actually tell whether it's a bunch of objects together because they're too close together for you to be able to resolve it or just one object. If you could actually take, say, those 50 fluorescent molecules in that object you're trying to visualise, but switch them on one by one by one, then you can actually work out where each of those molecules is. And then it's a bit like sort of picture by dots. You could, If you can actually see the dots one by one by one, then you can break the resolution limit. You haven't really broken the resolution limit. What you're doing is a trick that you're just switching the molecules on in time one by one by one and then finding out where each of the molecules is and then adding them all back together to form the object. So that's one of the ways in which super resolutions come about. And that's through, firstly, through GFP, because somebody may, so Jennifer Lippincott Schwartz in America made a GFP that you can switch off and switch on, photoactivatable GFP. So you shine some light on it, it's dark, you shine some light on it, it appears. And if you can switch your molecules on one by one by one, you can see where they are. So it's not really breaking the limit, it's just position, it's positioning the molecules. There is one other technique where you we can... We haven't got to, we'll yes. have to come back for that. <laughs> right. But thank you very much. It's the first time this studio has been a surgery, because you came here with a terrific cough and you haven't coughed once. <laughs> well, that was all down uh, Thank you very much, Michelle. No, it wasn't a tablet, it was getting engaged in the conversation. Thank you, Michelle Peckham, Jim Bennett and Colin Humphreys. Next week, Hindu creation stories. Thanks for listening. There are many more Radio 4 arts and discussion programmes to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio4.